Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. My travels this week have me in Arkansas all week. Today, Monday, I'm in Fort Smith, Arkansas, doing a one-day version of Grading from the Inside Out. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm working with two schools. So Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll be at Watson Elementary School near Little Rock or just outside of Little Rock. And Thursday, Friday at Crossett High School in Crossett, Arkansas. And both of those begin a 10-day uh, relationship with these schools over the course of this year. Six of those days are the Assessment Coaching Academy that Cassandra, Nicole, and I developed uh, as we work with schools as part of the Arkansas Project for Solution Tree. And the session one, which is two days, uh, begins this week, Cross at High School, Thursday, Friday. Really excited to dig into that content. So we do six days of the Coaching Academy, and then there's four other days, two and two, uh, on-site coaching with them as well. So it's a total of 10 days with each school. So it's extensive work. Now, because I'm in CrossFit on Friday, I need to overnight in Little Rock on Friday evening, and I'll fly home on Saturday. And the best part about overnighting in Little Rock it means one thing to me, and that means dinner at Samantha's Tap Room and Wood Grill. It is my absolutely favorite place to eat in Little Rock, and I cannot wait to go there. The fried green tomatoes uh, are unbelievable, and I absolutely love the key lime pie. It's one of my favorite desserts, as you know. A uh, few reminders as we get going today. Grading from the inside out, two-day trainings. We're going to do that virtually October 4th and 11th, and we'll be on-site face-to-face in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. Don't forget about the Teach Better Conference as well. Uh, that's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Use the code SHIMMER22 for a discount on your registration. And another event that's just come up is the Michigan Assessment Consortium. I'm going to do a three-hour webinar for them. And because it's online, it is open to any participants outside of Michigan. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can check out the link. So I'll have links for all of those events in the show notes. Uh, you can check those out if you want. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend Connie Hamilton. Connie is the author of Hacking Questions, 11 Answers That Create a Culture of Inquiry in Your Classroom. So that is going to be our focus throughout the conversation. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about the six most common ways teachers and schools inadvertently fracture the relationship between the formative and summative purposes of assessment. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Connie Hamilton is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you if you can be led. I saw a post a few weeks back, and I couldn't stop thinking about it because it caused me to turn the lens around and ask the question about leadership from a different angle. The post was a teacher posting about his administration, and it said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, but it basically said something like, I need my administration to stop micromanaging me, they need to support me, get out of my way, and let me do my job. Now, there are, of course, two ways to look at that post. This post could very well have been on point. Maybe this teacher is being micromanaged, and the administrator does need to stop stifling this teacher. I mean, any administrator who has time to micromanage the teachers in their school clearly has too much time on their hands. But then I wondered, why tweet about it? That seemed kind of weird. Like, why would you tweet that publicly? However, the post could also have been a little misleading. Well, how? Well, there's a difference between being led and being micromanaged, and this teacher may have been revealing either a level of insecurity or maybe a level of arrogance. The insecurity emerges when someone else, like a leader, has ideas about how to do your job more effectively and efficiently, so you feel insecure because you weren't the one to come up with the idea, so you get defensive. The arrogance emerges when you think no one but you could possibly know a more effective and efficient way to do your job, so any input is seen as micromanaging or meddling. Stay out of my way and let me do my job, right? Now again, I don't know the specifics of what the post was referring to, but it made me think about the responsibility of the person being led. We know there is a disproportionate amount of responsibility on leaders, but those being led are not without some responsibilities too. Can you be led? Now, I know some bristle at the entire notion of a leader because for them, leader implies follower and they think to themselves, I don't follow anybody. I'm not a follower. Again, I'm not saying there aren't ineffective or misguided leaders out there and that you should, that you should just follow them blindly and you shouldn't, right? But at the same time, how leadable are you? 
you know, there's that negative connotation of a follower, but that's not really, we always want to go to the top shelf or exaggerated connotations of these words, but let's just, let's just bring it up the middle and think about it. Are you open to new ideas that don't come from you? Are you open to new ideas and maybe innovative or progressive ways of modernizing our education system? Or are you stuck? Are you disagreeable? Are you a constant contrarian? Are you so cynical about any potential change that you're not the one that the source of it, that you're not even open to the conversation about the possibilities that there might be a better way? Yes, leaders, whether by position or influence, need to make a compelling case for change and be crystal clear about the why and the how of the change, why it's needed and how it would be implemented or executed. No argument there. But again, even if a leader does make a compelling case, are you open to the possibility? Or are you just that constant critic that I talked about last week? Healthy skepticism is fine, even necessary at times. But there is a line where skepticism becomes pessimism. Now, everyone nods in agreement with the theoretical assertion that no one has all the answers. But the assertion that you want to be left alone to do your job, it kind of sounds like you think you do have all the answers. When our insecurity or arrogance gets the best of us, we may lose perspective on what's really happening because we don't see ourselves as clearly as others do. The whole notion of introspection illusion, we've talked about that many times on the podcast before, that despite having access to our thoughts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which no one else does, we often don't see things clearly since we tend to focus on our intent more than our actions. It's one of my favorite Stephen Covey quotes. We judge ourselves by our intent, we judge others by their actions. So we could be quick to hurl the micromanage label at a leader because we don't have access to their thoughts, but we see their actions, while focusing more on our intent when we constantly contradict them. I mean, you could spot this, right, with the word just. As soon as somebody uses the word just in this context, you know that they're doing it. They say things like this. I was just trying to offer a different perspective, and the principal got so annoyed with me. See, you can hear it, right? I, I was just minimizing my side, and then the principal got us annoyed. I was just as my intent, the principal getting annoyed, that's the actions. I just think there comes a point where we all have to take an honest look in the mirror and reflect on whether we are leadable. And if we're not, look inward and find out why. Is it arrogance? Is it insecurity? Those are really hard things for us to admit, especially to ourselves. Now, again, we know there are two sides to the equation. Leaders have to establish credibility, they have to build relationships, and they have to earn everyone's trust. There's no question about that. For people to want to follow, leaders need to build and earn all of that. Not blindly follow, but follow in the sense of putting your trust in someone else to create an environment that leads to a kind of collective efficacy on our ability to create a different environment. But at the same time, are you open to letting leaders do that? Are you authentically open to being led? Are you able to set your ego aside and lean into being led, because that's what it is, it's ego. The ego, as I've come to understand it, is really about separation. When you're arrogant, you're mentally separating yourself from the group or the team. Like, no one has anything to offer me, I'm different. Insecurity is the same, but in the other direction. You know, oh, I have nothing to offer, clearly everybody has to help me, I must be incompetent, I'm different. Are you leadable? I think it's a fair question to reflect on for more than a second. Try to see yourself more metacognitively and objectively. And that's a really hard thing for us to do when our egos are involved. But if we can do it, we just might find ourselves reprogramming some of our default reactions and feeling more comfortable with the prospect of being led. Joining me today for the interview is Connie Hamilton. Connie has served in the field of education as a teacher and instructional coach, a building principal, and a central office curriculum leader. Uh, Connie is the author of four books, including the book Hacking Questions, 11 Answers That Create a Culture of Inquiry in Your Classroom, which is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So Connie, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. 
Yeah, it's great to have you here. And as I was mentioning earlier to you, uh, it's great to meet you. We've certainly been connected like so many people in this modern era. Uh, you get connected with people on social media, you get you know Twitter and all of that, and you get familiar with people's work, uh, but you've never had a conversation with them. So I'm looking forward to uh, this face-to-face or at least virtual uh, face-to-face conversation uh, as we move forward talking about questions and hacking questions. But before we begin, Connie, um, can you briefly take us through the journey of your career uh, so far? Like, where did you start teaching? Uh, what were some of the various positions you held along your professional pathway? What's kind of led you to the point where you are today? I, uh, I grew up in Michigan in the States. And I actually kind of funny story, I started off as an aeronautical engineering major at Michigan State University. Pretty, I was pretty good at math. <laughs> and, <laughs> I say so. uh, right. Uh, but I hated it. <laughs> so yeah. when I got to college and I started taking a lot of calculus, I I always had this love for children. Mm-hmm. And you know, my my family really wanted me to use my math skills. And so I thought, yeah, I could be an engineer. And I just didn't have the passion for it. And so I switched to my major. And into first, I went to accounting, but that was very brief. But I eventually just really followed my love and my passion for education and and got a teaching degree. And from there, there weren't a lot of jobs in Michigan. So I had my first teaching job in the Texas area Mm -hmm. uh, near near Houston. And then after I, I had several different teaching assignments elementary, middle school, then I became a, an assistant principal at the middle school level. And then I was a principal. And then I really wanted to do some work with curriculum and instruction. That's my love. And so I thought if I wanted to be a central office curriculum person, I ought to have administrative experience at both the elementary and the secondary levels. So I took on a, a elementary principal job. And then I was a curriculum director in a tiny, tiny school district, less than 1,000 students. Wow. And now I work in schools that have like 1,000 teachers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's quite different, but it's a, it's a really lovely town, a close-knit town, as you can imagine, a, a, mm-hmm. a place that small. And I didn't think I would be there for as long as I was, but I stayed there until my I was ready to um, do consulting and mm-hmm. and work full time, and um, I I miss that I miss those folks. But this is what I do full time now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny because I I worked in a smaller town as well, a smaller district for a stretch of my career, and and sometimes being in a smaller district has its advantages because there's you know fewer students and fewer employees and fewer things that you have to do. But regardless of whether or not your district is small or large, the, the curriculum work, the assessment work, all of that work is still the same. You know, mm-hmm. it's just fewer people, fewer minds to change, but it's still challenging right. work, regardless of how small it is and and uh, and all, all of that experience that you bring. I, I, too, at one point was an assistant principal in a middle school. So uh, we have that shared experience. And I love my time in middle school. I really mm-hmm. did. I was a good place to uh, to sort of learn a lot about the job, about the level about what it takes to uh, effectively lead initiatives, all of that. So what I want to do now is I want to start with the biggest idea uh, with around around the book, Hacking Questions. And, and I want to ask you just why questions? What inspired you to write this book uh, about questioning? Was there a particular problem or dilemma that you were trying to address? Like what? where was the inspiration for the book? I, I My path to writing is backwards from what most authors do. Um, I, when I was an elementary principal, our school district was focusing on formative assessment. And so my role was, part of my role was to observe teachers and provide feedback and look and see how, how we were doing with maximizing our formative assessment data and using that for instruction and so forth. And there was a day when I was visiting the preschool classroom, the early childhood special education preschool classroom. And the teacher was doing a formative assessment and, and she asked her students, would you, it would, the, the assessment was on the use of prepositions. So they weren't, she wasn't teaching grammar structure in preschool, but it was language skills. So can they properly use prepositions? And so the question she asked them was, would you see a cow on the fence or near the fence? And the student kind of got really excited and said, on the fence. And she said, hmm, are you sure? 
would you see a cow on the fence or near the fence? And he had the same kind of response, near the fence. And she's like, good job. And I walked out of there thinking, hmm, <laughs> I'm not really sure the data that we're collecting is super accurate when it's presented that way. Right. And so the reflection that I had was, okay, what is it about the formative assessment process that isn't organic in that circumstance. So I began just quietly trying to notice how questions were being delivered. Were they leading in tone? Were they, were, were teachers calling on certain kids? Like what was the pattern in the way that we were gathering the data? And I narrowed it down to the fact that it was the idea of questions. And so I studied everything that I could get my hands on about questioning. And I found there's really two paths. There are lots of paths, but there's yeah. two really primary focuses in the world of questioning. There's questions, the noun, how do yeah. you frame a question? What are the semantics? What's the DOK level? And then there's questioning, which is the, the act of posing questions. And so this book was really inspired around the act of questioning, since it was original, my thought, the basis for it was originally tied to formative assessment. And so that's, I started to really look at how can we improve questioning and I didn't, I used other people's work and expertise and experiences. And then over the years, people would tap into me, like my, my colleagues from nearby school districts, hey, can you come and share with my teachers, et cetera. And um, so I began to do some professional development. I thought mm -hmm. I should put all this stuff in one spot. And so I ended up getting a publishing gig and, yeah. got, and then the rest is history. We have hacking questions. As they say, the rest is history. I think that's very a very clever way to look at questioning because there is the the structure of the question and the way that you will the you know what is the question precise enough to elicit the evidence you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But then there's the the active questioning, which also has a social dynamic to it, right? Because there are the nonverbal cues, the paralanguage, the ways that that teacher that you had observed kind of led the student to the answer, as opposed to really having it be a little more neutral so you could depend on the evidence that you gathered from that question. I think that's a, a very thoughtful way to look at questioning, both as how I ask the question and then the structure of the question as well. Is there one that you have found, um, is it 50-50 or do you think one, if, you, if you, you were pressed on this, is there one that matters more than the other? Hmm. Sorry to stump you. <laughs> I hadn't really ever thought about that. I, I, I think as I'm trying to reflect on being in the classroom, when I see questions that are not framed in a way that will prompt deep thinking. Mm -hmm. But even if that's the case, if you are a good questioner and you're skilled at delivering questions, even if the original question that you asked isn't deep or isn't rigorous, you still have the skill set and the opportunity to follow up with additional questions because going deeper follow-up questions how you frame responses to me that's all questioning yeah. and so it's it's kind of a one-shot deal if you're just only focused on the question itself yeah. so and I also think there's sort of an art to scaffolding questions in a sequence that allows students to be successful without going too low, but also not starting so high that we deal with frustration and then we have to scaffold down and that feels like failure. So. Yeah. And to me, I, I, I like that. Uh, the idea that there is a, there's an art and a science to, to questioning. Uh, there's my ability to make maneuvers and, and reframe the question in a way that kind of gets to the heart of what I'm looking for. Um, I don't even know how I would answer that 
question if it's 50-50, but I, I just wondered uh, from your perspective if you've seen. But I do, I like that idea that when push comes to shove, it really is, you know, not every prompt we come up with is going to be perfect and, and pristine. So we have to be able to, uh, my colleagues and I call that being instructionally agile, being able to make a maneuver in real time. And part of that is reframing the questions for sure. Now you had me at chapter one, uh, or should I say uh, hack one, uh, when when you assert that teachers should assume that all hands are up, and I love that, I love that hack. So for those who have yet to read the book or those don't who don't understand that strategy or that hack, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by assume all hands are up? And then what would that look like in my classroom? So we often, when we think about a very common structure in a classroom where the teacher poses a question to the entire class and students hands go up and and now now we have to consider what are the, what's the criteria that we use to choose who's going to speak and there are, i could go into a whole bunch of focus about that piece because most people will say it's random and it's not <laughs> there's no such thing i mean unless you're literally pulling a random popsicle stick or right. using an app it's not actually random um but in the the conversation often is around should we cold call or should we not cold call and so when we focus on that should we allow volunteers which means if a student chooses to raise their hand then we can decide if we're going to call on that student or not and if they don't raise their hand if we cold call, then we say, hey, that's fair game. I can call on you anyway. And if you're not into cold calling, you, you let them choose to disengage. Right. And we spend a lot of focus on these two things. And my focus is like, let's let go of volunteering and cold calling and, and stop wasting a bunch of time about how are we going to call on one kid at a time and shift the default in that circumstance to finding methods that allow multiple students to respond simultaneously. And so in the lesson planning, thinking about how can multiple students interact with a single question. So what that might look like is whiteboards, it might be a turn and talk, it might be hold up cards where students have, I agree, I disagree, I strongly agree, and they just kind of hold up the card or maybe their vocab cards and, you know, looking for a quick little assessment, depending on if you're looking at surface level knowledge or you're looking to do something deeper, it could be a stop and jot, it could be a six word summary, it could be all kinds of things. Um, and when we do it that way, kind of back to the formative assessment component, the data that you get is way more accurate when you have more pieces of data to make that judgment call. What typically happens is if you call on a student, that student doesn't have the right answer or it isn't close, then the teacher either will give the answer that they thought or that they wished the student would have said, <laughs> essentially answering their own question, or they'll immediately call on another student under the, who can help Tom mm -hmm. with this? And then they call on somebody who probably knew the answer to that question before they even walked in the door. Right. And so we have this implicit bias that comes into play. So this notion of all hands are up and allowing everyone to engage, not only gives you better formative data, but it's also more inclusive for the learners in your space. Yeah, it, it, it feels what I loved about it, it, it really speaks to this notion of uh, not needing a list. People often ask me, you know, Tom, can you give me a list of formative assessment strategies? And, and sometimes I'll say, well, you're already doing them. You just need to reimagine them or repurpose them. They say, what do you mean? I say, well, do you ask your students questions? And they say, yes. I say, well, the question about your question asking is, are you asking questions to get someone to give you a right answer? Or are you asking the question to elicit evidence of learning from all of your learners, right? And I love that idea of just creating a condition where you as a teacher can either observe, listen, get those responses that allows you to use the question in a formative way, as opposed to the classic, ask a question, four kids raise their hand, you keep calling on one of the same four, someone gives you a right answer and you move forward not knowing uh, where uh, where the rest of the students are along that continuum. So I, I absolutely love that chapter because I thought I thought it was just so spot on. Now, <clears throat> what I also noticed about the book is that so many of the hacks are about 
positioning students at the center of the questioning experience, whether it's, you know, hack seven, which is making yourself, making yourself as a teacher invisible uh, with a student, with student centered protocols. Um, I loved hack 10 spin the throttle uh, by having students ask the questions themselves or so many others. Is that for you, the end game? Is that the end game of questioning? Is that questioning primarily comes from the students rather than from the teacher? Um, and it's sort of their education, like the, their focus on their questions is disproportionately fueled by the student's curiosity. Is that for you where questioning needs to go? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I think that I don't think there's an educator around that wouldn't subscribe to the notion that we want to create lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. And we don't create lifelong learners by having students regurgitate information or knowledge that already exists on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so in order for students to be learners and to explore things that haven't been discovered yet or go beyond the knowledge that we have now, they have to have a skill set that allows them to be curious and to know how to explore that curiosity and to ask themselves the right questions. Mm -hmm. And so there's that the notion of what, what am I curious about? And then how am I going to fulfill that curiosity? And then how am I going to reflect on whether or not there's still more left to learn or discover? Or if I'm satisfied with that and now I'm ready to apply or share or use that information in some way. So all of that is based around wondering, inquiry, questions, call it what you wish, but it's about establishing people as learners, not as beacons of knowledge. Right. And nurturing that curiosity. And, and it's a tough one though. I think some, some teachers find, what do you think the biggest challenge is? I think some teachers know this, like, the idea or the theory, the idea that I need to position students at the center. I want to nurture their curiosity, but I think it's in the how that a lot of teachers are like, I don't know how to do that or how might I do that? Or what are some of the ways that I can do that? So if I'm, if I'm a teacher and I'm a little overwhelmed by that prospect, what's, what's something small I could do to give me a kind of taste of what it means to position students uh, kind of at the center or the questions, uh, the questioning experience? Um, let me, th let me think of a couple of quick little sure. options. So yeah. first I would say, um, reflection and not reflection in the sense of an exit ticket that says, what are three things you learned today? <laughs> <laughs> but reflection, maybe perhaps a low hanging fruit for reflection might be, looking at some growth mindset types of questions. So those are pretty easy to grab. So things like what was challenging for you and how did you overcome that? Right. Um, what was not challenging for you and why? So making sure that the questions focus both on strengths that students leaned on and challenges that they have yet to overcome. So it isn't about building a growth mindset per se, but just thinking about how you might be able to reveal uh, the mindset that students have. Mm -hmm. So doing that as a reflection, and then once you feel like you have some success in that area, instead of the reflection being after the learning, trigger that before the learning. So mm -hmm. as we move into this lesson, what are some of the things that you are going to need to keep in mind in order for you to be successful in learning today? And so now we're teeing up things like, I'm going to have to reread, or I'm going to have to uh, paraphrase. Um, my, my daughter is a, she's a college student and she's taking biology and memorizing anatomy components is not her strength. And so when I say to her, so what are you going to need to do between now and seven days from now when you have to memorize 252 parts of the body? <laughs> what are you going to need to do? And she can then reflect on the strategies that she has and she knows what has worked for her and what hasn't worked for her because she knows who she is as a learner and cramming the night before is not, is not going to work. Right. Um, but it isn't also just like, oh, I need to use flashcards, but it's, 
color might help me. So when I create my flashcards, I'm going to use color for the different parts of the body so that when I'm trying to remember, I'll be able to do that. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I digress. Yeah. Uh, reflection <laughs> is one <laughs> way to be student centered. And then the other component is to allow questions to linger and allow misconceptions or wrong answers to hang for a while. Mm -hmm. Incorrect responses and misconceptions do not have to be corrected immediately. They do have to be corrected. But it as soon as you see like, uh-oh, our gut instinct as educators is to be like, okay, let's explore that a little bit. Let's let's dig into that. Does anybody else have another? Like, are you sure? And we bring all of these, let me take you down the right path answer or the right answer path. And that's okay. Like maybe just jot that down and say, okay, this is something that we want to come back to and say, you know, a couple of days ago, we were thinking xyz mm -hmm. and now that we've had a couple of experiences does that solidify what we were originally thinking or does that challenge what we were originally thinking right. um, and then allowing students to come back and have the freedom to change their mind when they have more information but not change their mind because we're feeding them new information so those two things i think are pretty good places to begin yeah, I think one thing that I know in myself, you know, years ago as a classroom teacher, moving into that sort of formative assessment work that began for me, you know, just under 20 years ago, I became increasingly comfortable with silence in the classroom where a question is there and, and we forget we've got to have some processing time. We've got to give the students to formulate their ideas. We've got to allow them to be incorrect and let that marinate as others think through whether or not that response was correct or not. And, and just leaving that space, I think you're right. As teachers, we just tend to want to push forward. And we know we've got a lot to do, a lot of standards to cover, and all those things that, that we know are true. But being comfortable in the moment of letting things kind of just sit and marinate and then giving them the time to process for sure. Now, speaking of my teaching experience, something I always struggled with as a classroom teacher, and I, and I know, and, and you've talked about reflection, um, but I want to focus a little bit on um, metacognition because this is something that, you know, even even years ago we knew was important. But um, the reflection that is metacognitive, you know, I obviously haven't been a classroom teacher for a long time. But it, but if you if I could time travel you back, Connie, to the late 90s and the early 2000s to give me some advice, um, I'm wondering if you could help me. You come back with me to my classroom and I need some advice on two things. Um from a, from, a, from a metacognitive perspective. Uh, one is time. You know, I think one of the things that teachers struggle with is, where do I find the time? How do I create the time? How do I create a, an opportunity for this to be a part of the regular routine? Because I think so many teachers are, you know, especially as you get into secondary, where kids have to go to their next class and, and the transitions happen. So how do I create some efficiency with, with metacognitive questioning? And, and second is, what to ask? What, what do I ask the students to make this reflection or, or, or this, more importantly, this metacognitive experience meaningful and impactful? And how do I, how do I go about that? So time and, and also what to ask, because I know that when I look back at even my pedestrian attempts at reflection and metacognition, they just seem to fall short of what I was thinking they would produce or what I was hoping they would produce. So Connie, if you came back with me to the early 90s or late 90s and, and early 2000s, how would you help me? <laughs> well, in regard to time, uh, I think that will that will solve itself over okay. time. No pun intended there. <laughs> uh, because well I don't think that metacognition is about carving out time for students to be metacognitive. It okay. really is a way of thinking and okay. reflecting and leading the learning. And so I think that the idea is about embedding metacognition so that we can highlight for students strategies that they are using and at the same time model questions that they should be asking themselves. So for example, 
I, I kind of I gave a couple of examples earlier. So let's talk about maybe metacognitive questions that you might hear before, during, and after a typical lesson. Okay. So before a lesson, you may hear things like, what do you already know? How are you going to approach this? What kind of strategies are you going to use? Is this going to be challenging for you? If so, how are you going to stay focused? Like all of those just teeing kids up. And when you vocalize those things, you're way easier. You're, it, it makes it much easier to be able to grab and to fall back on them because it's sort of like, okay, here's my plan. Now I'm going to use the plan. And what that also allows teachers to do is if students do get stuck, now you have the opportunity to just trigger memory, which is a very low level cognitive skill. Like recall is the lowest on Bloom's taxonomy. Right. So if I've already said, I'm going to need to use these two strategies, then if students are stumbling, then the prompting question is, um, what, what plan did you have when you were getting stuck? If, if you got stuck, what was your plan? And instead of what, sh what can you do if you get stuck, that's a higher level cognitive thinking. So we lower the cognitive demand so that students can persevere over their struggle because they've already thought about what they're going to do. So those are some of the before kinds of questions. During the questions, these are what we would normally ask students and we want them to be asking themselves. Does this make sense? Am I understanding? What connections can I make? Why is this relevant? What, how am I going to use this in the real world, right? Those are the kinds of questions that we want students to look at the relevance, the engagement, their comprehension and when those things don't happen, what are you going to do about it? So if you're reading something and you re recognize that, boy, while my eyes were skimming over the letters on the page, I was thinking about how hungry I am and I didn't comprehend anything. We want students to recognize when that happens and normalizing that we aren't always at our cognitive best mm -hmm. helps students to give themselves permission to revisit or embed strategies when they need it. And so when we're modeling, hey, is this making sense? A really small way that we can change that is, hey, my class, <laughs> mm -hmm. pause for a moment and ask yourself, is this making sense to me? Mm -hmm. And so just changing the pronouns that we offer instead of is it making sense to you? We're planting the question in the student's mind so that now they're asking themselves, even though we're spoon feeding the question, it still is, I'm asking this to myself, which then hopefully will give them uh, an opportunity to continue to do that when the teacher isn't there to plug in the question. Yeah. And then after, after the lesson, you know, I kind of gave some of those examples already, like how did sure. you overcome the challenges, et cetera. I love that idea of breaking it and teeing it up at the beginning because I'm, you know, imagining those metacognitive opportunities to say, you know, something, for example, like, you know, when you embark upon a large project or you have you're facing a research paper or something like that, what are the things that typically frustrate you and, mm -hmm. and what are some strategies that you can use? And then while you're in the midst of producing that research paper, it's a it's sort of a reflection and observation, even even expanding to being self-regulatory. Is it working? Is your strategy working? Is it keeping you focused? Are you able to overcome the obstacles? And then that reflective piece, which is, again, looking backwards and saying, you know, did the strategy work? What would you do differently next time? Did you notice yourself getting frustrated or stuck and how did you overcome those things i think teeing that up i think my biggest mistake back in the day um was thinking that reflection was simply an endpoint. and i think that if students are passive recipients to the experiences before and during you're going to have limited success on that reflection piece uh, as as they finish up because they're not used to thinking that way you also made me think about how important it is to build the habit rather than thinking about i think this this perspective that metacognition is not something we do it's who we are and so if we can help students uh, tell me if you subscribe to this the idea that we help students learn to think 
metacognitively on an ongoing basis. It becomes mm -hmm. habitual yes. so that I'm constantly thinking and becoming aware of how I'm learning and, and how I'm overcoming that. Would you subscribe to that? That of idea of it becoming a habit? Yeah, I, I figured Yes, would. and show it, so would Art Costa with Habits of Mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. So let's finish up by talking about the classroom environment itself uh, around questioning, because questioning, of course, does not occur in a vacuum. Um, it occurs in a learning and a, and a social context. And hack number 10 is about creating a safe zone. So how do we create a safe zone that encourages risk taking? How do we create an environment where students are willing to immerse themselves in the questions so we can, we can maximize the impact that our questions have on our learners? Well, I alluded to it a little bit before about in embracing um, misconceptions, mm -hmm. being okay with wrong answers, which is yeah. more than hey, it's okay to be wrong, raise your hand and take a shot. And then a student raises their hand, we call on that one kid, right? And then we're like, yes, that's close. But can someone else, that, that experience is not celebrating misconceptions. It's not failing forward. It's not growth mindset. It's none of that. <laughs> Yeah. It's the opposite. And yeah. so really looking at how our actions are communicating how we feel about thinking and the journey of learning to students. Mm -hmm. So um, as opposed to it's okay to be wrong, assuming from the beginning, like, okay, let's take a moment and write down where our thinking is. Perhaps we allow students to undercommit looking at how they can qualify their answer by adding a little caveat that says, I'm not really sure yet, but this is my best thinking right now. Or I might change my mind later, but here's, here's what I, here's what I have. Or I'm, you, we talk about in, as adults, we often will subscribe to, you know what, I'm 60% sure that I'm going to make it to the game tonight. And that's perfectly acceptable. We're like, okay, yeah, better than average. But in the classroom, students feel like it's 100 or zero. Yeah. So allowing students to undercommit and say, hey, I'm 60% sure. So we can say, write down your answer. And then next to that, write down how sure you are of it. Yeah. Right. That can build confidence. Um, and it also helps students to be reflective. Like, that's a metacognitive question in itself. How sure yeah. am I? Yeah. In, in activities, if you're doing a sorting activity or something like that, you could be like, I am certain that it, this is true, these are false, and these I'm not sure about. Right. And so giving them this I'm not sure option celebrates like, hey, now we know where to focus because these are the ones that we're not sure about. Right. And then, so uh, I'll, I guess the other piece about being a, creating a safe environment is also making sure that how peers are act, interacting with one another is respectful and honoring student dignity and, and making sure that it's a kind and compassionate place where we're elevating and that that all leads into culture. And that's a, right. that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. And, and that's, you know, when I was asking the question, it, that's what I was thinking of more because I think teachers creating the safe space, we may inadvertently do things due to a lack of awareness that are not intentional, but they may sort of undercut that a little bit. But most, for the most part, teachers are pretty good about creating a safe environment for students, but it's peer reaction. Do we, do, do, you know, do we have an environment where we have a norm of working together and is it okay for me to be wrong publicly and not be made fun of when somebody, you know, when somebody recognizes it, even in a peer to peer, if it's an AB partner talk or something like that, is that person going to laugh at my response? Are they going to make fun of me? So I think that safe environment cannot be underestimated in terms of the students. So I'm glad you went there at the end because that's what I was thinking of was the teacher's probably not that big a hurdle, but, but the peers, how do my peers react to me? Is it truly an environment where... We are all in this together. And I think as we move into secondary in high school, sometimes kids have this perception of competition mm -hmm. and, and, and there in, tends to be this sort of, uh, you know, rugged kind of dog eat dog world, if you will, there where uh, nobody, you know, we're trying to 
position ourselves as opposed to creating that environment. So I think it's a really important point. Okay. Mm -hmm. So two questions left, Connie. This is a fascinating conversation. And I think because this is something, and we could probably talk another hour about this because teachers ask questions constantly, right? It's what we do. And we're constantly finding ways to position questions to really bring out the best in our learners. But two questions left as we finish up here. There are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. uh, And here's the first one. And you can take this in any direction you want to. doesn't have to be about questions. can be about anything related to education. But the question is quite simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Uh, the teaching workforce and the shortage of quality teachers. I am terrified of what is going to happen uh, down the road. It's. I believe that it will get worse. Um, the way that teachers are worked and the way that they are often treated is not really encouraging people to go into the profession. <clears throat> I think there were plenty of people who were were willing to take on a salary that you know isn't going to make them rich for life because they would be fulfilled in other ways that that money can't provide for them mm-hmm. and that experience is going away of the gratification and the satisfaction that you get when you're so overworked mm-hmm. and um, underappreciated so i am i'm worried about how we're going to fill classrooms with quality teachers yeah, I mean, society, people in society cannot keep uh, the relentless, uh, you know, pressure and bashing and and demeaning of the teaching profession and then mm-hmm. expect there to continue to be high quality teachers that are going into the profession. You're going to reap what you sow. And as we see now in so many jurisdictions, it's it's not even qualified teachers. It's we need someone to be in this classroom uh, with these learners. So uh, definitely a worthy cause to be up at night. You're absolutely right about that. And we see that shortage everywhere. And we're seeing um, districts just being desperate to put any adult in the room to manage the classroom, but we can't pretend that that's going to be a quality learning experience. Uh, last question as we finish up, Connie, is a question about success. You can talk about it from a personal success perspective, a professional success perspective. Either direction is fine. The question again is simply, if a random person stopped you on the street, and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would try to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I think my definition of success for me personally is that um, I am growing. I can see growth and learning, and I do it in a way that allows me to sleep at night. And so how I treat people, how I interact with people and elevate them and grow alongside them so that not only am I being fulfilled and growing, but I can also elevate other folks and, and help them along as well. Yeah. I think that's, you know, keep growing, helping others grow. I think that's uh, a worthy definition of success uh, for sure. Listeners, you can connect with Connie online. Uh, The Twitter handle is at Connie Hamilton, all lowercase. Uh, You'll find Connie on LinkedIn as well. And you can also connect on on Connie's website, www.conniehamilton.org. And of course, I'll have links in the show notes uh, for all of those places where you can connect with Connie. And I cannot... Uh, recommend hacking questions enough. I think it's a, an excellent read and certainly something that will help you in, practically in your classrooms to transform uh, your questioning, both the noun and the verb of, <laughs> of questioning in your classroom. Connie, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It was great. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about the fractured relationship that can exist or develop between the formative and summative purposes of assessment. As schools and districts continue to explore the important changes or the evolution of their grading practices and how they can more accurately report student achievement, it's critical to explore the issues that might be inhibiting the ways schools go about this work. And that, for me, is one of the reasons why I advocate the mindset first. Now, I wrote Grading from the Inside Out to literally assert that if you go there in the mind, you will go there in action. The action gets inhibited because so many of that which fractures the relationship between the teaching and the grading and reporting paradigms comes from the traditional way of thinking. We have to think differently so that a kind of seamlessness can emerge. 
Starting with a new report card when the electronic gradebook is disjointed in terms of the way it's organized is problematic. So I see and uh, feel as if there are six very common ways that this relationship gets fractured. And I want to share those with you. They're not the only six, but I would assert that they are the six most common ways that schools get inhibited, right? It's not that all schools have all six, though some might, um, but it's good to take inventory to check on whether or not any of these um, are actually in your school and actually the reason why you're not making the progress that you might want to make. I want to begin with a quote from Paul Black uh, from 2013 that reminds me and re may remind you of how important this is. In 2013, Paul Black wrote, The formative and summative purposes of assessment can be so intertwined that they are mutually supportive rather than conflicting. Unless this is done, formative assessment cannot achieve its full potential to improve learning. Now, that quote, I often in workshops will unpack that quote. By starting with the second sentence. Unless this is done, formative assessment cannot achieve its full potential to improve learning. So we don't improve learning through grading. So it's an erroneous question to say, hey, where's the research that shows that standards-based grading raises achievement? And as I've said many times before, that's like asking me, how does my bathroom scale help me lose weight? Now, the first sentence, the formative and summative purposes of assessment can be so intertwined that they are mutually supportive rather than conflicting. Well, they became conflicting when in the 90s we moved to standards and we moved to standards-based teaching. So you could safely say that by the year 2000, every jurisdiction across the United States and Canada had some semblance of curricular standards. Grading should have gone with it. If we're teaching to standards, why would grades not be based on the achievement of those very same standards? But it didn't. We left, in many places, grading in that traditional sort of place. And that fractured the relationship. So here are the six and as I go through them, I want you to take inventory on whether each is a small, medium, or large issue in your context. It's a small issue if you think to yourself, either, Tom, that's not an issue in our school, or you think to yourself, it's an issue, but we could probably reconcile that within a weekend. Like, not a big deal. That's that's nothing for us. It's a medium uh, issue if you think to yourself, you know what, that is an issue. We can overcome it, but it's going to take us a little bit of time uh, to work through some of the details. And it's a large issue if you think to yourself, that's going to be a heavy lift for the majority of staff. Now, of course, on any faculty, especially if you've got a large number of teachers, you're going to have people at all different places. So I want you thinking about the collective mindset. Where do the majority of, of your colleagues land? Where do you land on this? Is it a small, medium, or large issue in your school? Okay, let's let's begin. The first place that this relationship gets fractured is the difference between standards and tasks. You know, we teach to standards, and yet so many teachers still organize their gradebook by task types. They organize their gradebooks by tests, quizzes, assignments, projects, labs. You know, all of that. Th those are task types. Those are not standards. Our standards have never been organized that way. Our standards are always organized by strands, categories, and domain right? So we teach to standards. And if we organize evidence by task type, we end up splintering the evidence. Like if we have the same learning be assessed multiple times, but the name of the event will, will dictate how much weight it carries. So if I assess the same learning, but I call it an assignment, it's worth 20% of the grade and it gets tagged to assignments. If I assess the exact same learning, but I call it a quiz, then it's worth 25% of the grade. Same learning on a test is worth 40% of the grade and so on, or something like that with whatever your syllabus would say. So you miss the opportunity to reassess because by splintering the evidence that way, someone like me comes along and says, hey, we should think about reassessment. And you say, well, Tom, does that mean I have to turn those three events into six? What you should really see with the assignment, the quiz, and the test is of an initial assessment, especially if it's the same cognitive complexity, the initial assessment and two reassessments built right into your learning progression. But we miss it because we're so fixated on the name of the event, right? The name of the assessment rather than what we're assessing. And that's hugely problematic. And if you think about it from a traditional grading perspective, it doesn't make any sense. It's like we're saying the quiet part out loud. It's like we're looking at this saying, hey, parents, we're going to assess your children on their learning, but the name of the event will influence the amount of weight it carries in the gradebook. I mean, that's kind of absurd. And it almost sounds borderline incompetent. And it is completely misaligned 
with the idea of teaching to standards and criterion referencing. It's the easiest one to fix. It is often the hardest mindset to get over. Easy to fix, why? Because you create categories in your gradebook all the time. And when you create those categories in the gradebook, you type the word T-E-S-T-S, tests. There's nothing stopping an ELA teacher from typing R-E-A-D-I-N-G, and each category being organized by a strand or a category as opposed to a task type. But the challenge is the mindset. The challenge is getting our minds wrapped around this idea that the, the evidence of learning is organized by the learning outcomes or the strands or the categories, and they are not organized by the task type. So an ELA teacher teaches to reading, writing, speaking, and listening language development, right? A middle school math teacher, for example, teaches to ratios and proportions. They teach to um, geometry, uh, number systems, statistics and probability. They have categories and strands. Easiest one to fix, toughest one to get our mindsets over. Another fractured relationship emerges when we look at rubrics versus ratios. Now, as I've often been saying in workshops recently, this stuff doesn't just fall out of the sky. The issue around going to fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels wasn't a few people being bored with the grading system and deciding to upend the system just for fun. This was a revelation that the percentage system is wildly inaccurate and, and completely unreliable. And we have two types of assessments when we deal with ratios. There's the direct assessment and then there's the indirect assessment, right? So if we look at the direct assessment where we're counting, right? I ask you 10 questions, I figure out how many you got right. Uh, we look at those sort of direct assessments and we count right and wrong. The best case scenario with a percentage score on, an, on a direct assessment is you get an incomplete view of the learner, right? You can have two students who score 15 out of 20. And if I told you right now, two students scored 15 out of 20, they both have 75%, you would think in this moment that they are identical as learners. But if I add more information, that the first learner answered only 15 questions, left five blank, had no idea how to conceptually answer those questions, they earned 15 out of 20. The other student knew exactly how to answer the questions. Intellectually, she knew how to answer all of the questions, in fact, chose the right strategies, but she made five simple mistakes. So it was an example where I always sort of say, if four times three becomes seven, right? So you have two students, 15 out of 20. But as soon as I add the information, one left five questions blank, one made five simple mistakes. You no longer see them as the same, but the 75% will communicate that they're the same. And so that's what I mean when I say it gives you an incomplete or opaque view of a learner because a ratio does not account for the type of error that the student made. Now, when we're doing an indirect assessment, which is where you would judge quality and then use your professional judgment, like when we use a rubric, we make an indirect scoring inference. We have to judge quality and, and give it a zero to 100 score. Over the last more than 100 years, teachers who've been asked to, in, in research settings, been asked to you know, judge the quality and then give a, an assignment a, a zero to 100 score. So for example, this, this study, the studies like this have been repeated over the years and years and years that a group, a large group of English teachers, for example, be given the same essay, the same writing sample, asked to read it, judge its quality, and then give it a zero to 100 score. As of 2019, according to a chapter uh, by Tom Gusky and Sue Brookhart, written in the, um, the book, uh, What We Know About Grading, their chapter was all about this. As of 2019, the, mo the margin of error amongst teachers making indirect scoring inferences and plotting it on a zero to 100 scale is about plus or minus five to six points or greater. That's a 10 to 12 point window. So in simple terms, that means you could hand three English teachers the same essay, say judge its quality, plot it on a zero to hundred scale, and one of them says, I think this is a 75, another says, I think this is an 81, and another thinks it's an 87. Now, can you imagine the ramifications on a student's GPA if their grade is dependent upon who their teacher is? So over a hundred years of research led us to a place collectively in education where we realized the percentage system is wildly inaccurate and grossly unreliable. So what is the answer to that? What's the solution to this dilemma that emerged in the research? Well, the solution that emerges is fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels. And if you think about it, what is a tool that we use that allows us to articulate criteria along the lines of fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels? Well, that's called a rubric. And so what you have is rubrics which are about gradations of quality 
and you've got percentages which are about counting, and that fractures the relationship between the two. Another way we fracture that relationship is whether or not we're using the most recent evidence or the more recent evidence versus all of the old evidence, right? That's a decision we have to make. You think about in school, why does what I used to not know continue to haunt me or count against me? The fact that I used to not know how to add fractions or the fact that I used to not know how to analyze data or the fact that I used to not know how to write an argument of paper can sit in my grade book and rot away at, at my average or, or my grade, right? So if I now know it and the teacher has confirmation that I know, now know it, it should be irrelevant that I used to not know it. But if we're using all of the old evidence, especially the old evidence within the same learning, I'm not talking about across different strands or different units or things like that, but I'm talking about the growth within the same learning. What I used to not be able to do should be irrelevant once I know it, right? So once I know it, it's irrelevant that I used to not know it. But if we have a grading system where all of the evidence is continually incorporated and we're using the practice of averaging on a percentage scale, it's going to be very difficult for students to show that marked improvement, right? If I started as a 40, but now I'm an 80, I'll end up being a 60 because of the way that the gradebook works. So watch how we use evidence. Are we using the more recent evidence or are we using all of the old evidence? And that's, that's problematic when it comes to this fractured relationship as well. Obviously, learning versus time will fracture the relationship, right? When And, and many of you probably heard this before, either from me or, or others. When one of those is the constant, the other will vary. Right, So if I say to my um, high school math class, thou shalt learn to problem solve using the quadratic formula by Friday. So time is the constant, by Friday. Then the time to learning will, or the, 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 the learning will vary, I should say, right? Because some students need longer to learn. So I set it as Friday, I'm going to have various amounts of learning. If I say thou shalt learn to problem solve using the quadratic formula, then the time to learning will vary. And we're not talking about a lot of time. We're just talking about more feedback. And, you know, you said Friday. Can I learn it by Tuesday? Things like that. So that fractures the relationship between the two. So watching whether or not we are, on the one hand, we understand the notion some students need longer to learn. And notice I didn't say take. I, I said need. Some students need longer to learn. So if I said take, then someone could look at that cynically and say, yeah, they take longer to learn because they're lazy. But I said some students need longer to learn. And we know that's true. And yet we could have grading systems in our schools that inadvertently penalize kids for not learning fast enough. So we need to be mindful of that. The fifth way that this relationship gets fractured is the accuracy versus leverage. And the bottom line is this. The more you use your gradebook to leverage or coerce behavioral compliance, the less accurate the grades are going to be. If a grade was only about learning, you would have a pretty good idea of what was being communicated. You'd have a good idea of what that was all about, right? If I said a student had a B or a C or an A, I'm not saying that's the most descriptive, of course, but I am saying that it is a way to communicate, um, you know, a way to communicate. And a singular symbol can work, because we talked about this before in the podcast. The idea of a stop sign is something that's a universal symbol, and it gives us lots of information, Right. But if I told you a grade, so if I said the student has produced B quality evidence, you'd probably have a pretty good idea of where that student is in their learning. I'm not saying that's the most descriptive. I'm not saying that's actually desirable. I'm just saying if I said to a group of teachers, the student has produced B quality evidence, most teachers would kind of nod their heads and say, yeah, that's pretty good. It's not exemplary. It may not be a level of excellence, but it's pretty solid. It's pretty proficient. It's a pretty good way to go. But if I said to you, the student has a B and that B is communicating their level of learning, but also their level of responsibility. It starts to get fuzzy now because we don't know if this is an A student who's been irresponsible or a C student who's shown responsibility. If I told you that the single grade, the B, was about learning, responsibility, respect, work ethic, self-directedness, you'd have no idea what that letter was trying to communicate. The more you want one single grade to communicate, the less it will say any of it. So we have to be mindful about what goes into the grade. And if we exacerbate this issue by allowing different teachers in different classrooms to just decide for themselves what goes into a grade, then ultimately our grades are meaningless. And that is really the frustration with grades over the years. The existence of grades is not the issue. Don't, don't let anybody fool you. The idea that five letters of the alphabet are of the devil. Let's, let's just not get carried away here. The problem is when we all have different working definitions of what those symbols are communicating, therein lies the problem that nobody can make sense of what's being communicated. And the final way, the sixth one, where this relationship gets fractured is the difference between quality and completion. 
right? That word quality has to be at the tip of your tongue every time you talk about a transformation of a grading paradigm. You've got to think about quality over counting, quality over quantity, uh, quality over completion. It's always about gradations of quality. That's really what a rubric is, right? It's And, and a rubric is just a tool, remember. So I've, I've had people say to me in the past, oh, Tom, I don't like rubrics. I'm like, fine, don't use them. But how are you going to articulate success criteria to the learners? Because that is non-negotiable. So making sure that we understand it's the quality, not the completion. We see this in the classic example of the homework check where a teacher goes around, checks the homework is done, and gives students points or credit for doing the work regardless of whether it's correct or competent or anything like that. So that fractures the relationship. So again, the six uh, to summarize. Standards versus tasks. Rubrics versus ratios. More recent evidence versus old evidence. Learning versus time. Accuracy versus leverage. And quality versus completion. I would ask you to take inventory on where you are and where your context is with those six fractured relationships And you may actually find a reason or two as to why your efforts in grading reform are not being as fruitful as you'd hoped. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you have suggestions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events this fall. Next week, my guest will be none other than Dr. John Hattie. We're going to do a two-part conversation with Dr. Hattie October 3rd next week. Part two will be October 10th. You will not want to miss those conversations. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and a review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. If you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.